The Egyptian landscape is littered with the remains of its ancient past. And in dusting off these ruins, archaeologists have found a treasure trove of clues about the empire's captivating culture and about the truth behind the stories of the Bible. My son Darius and I journeyed to Egypt to see what, if anything, about Joseph is grounded in fact. He interpreted the Pharaoh's dream that a great famine would sweep the land. We do know that in early times, by 2000 BC, the people from southern parts of modern Israel would be crossing the Sinai with their herds and residing in the eastern delta, which is exactly the area called Goshen in the Bible. We saw etchings and hieroglyphics depicting Egyptian conquests and a flourishing slave trade that may have brought Joseph here to Egypt after his jealous brothers sold him. Would any of these being Israelites? Some of them are from the area of what would be southern Israel today or Sinai. What about evidence of his rise from lowly slave to the Pharaoh's right-hand man? The story in the Bible of a nice Canaanite boy who ends up uh, first in slavery in Egypt and then rises to the position of prime minister sounds fantastic, but it's not at all. Joseph fits remarkably well into what we know in Egypt around 1500 BC. That story, despite the miraculous elements, probably is grounded in actual events. Joseph attracted the attention of the pharaohs because of his talent in interpreting dreams. And in fact, he even interpreted the pharaohs' dreams. And just as they are today, dreams were incredibly important to ancient Egyptians as well. And we know that because of the Sphinx. And between his paws is what's known as the dream stealer. It recounts a pharaoh's dream that he had a divine right to rule. It indicates something else that's important as well. The writer, or whoever it was that composed the Joseph story, knew an Egypt of the 7th through 4th century BC. Even clues about Joseph's famous many-colored coat can be seen in these carvings. These ruins help build a clearer picture of Joseph's time. They also set the stage for a dramatic struggle against the mighty Egyptian empire, the Bible's greatest story of the fight for freedom. So there's a lot of evidence in uh, archaeology that the Bible story isn't a story, it's an account. It's a historic record of what occurred. And yet when you see the evidence that's all around us, you wonder sometimes why people have doubts about whether or not the Bible's reliable and true. How do they miss it? Well, more than that, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. There are hints all over the text to show us the whole thing points to an ultimate Messiah. So then the question again is, well, how do they miss it? In fact, there's a... uh, professor, Dr. Knoll, who wrote a book describing how the excitement that was building about the Messiah right about the time Jesus was born was actually thinking about the Messiah in terms of Joseph. In his book entitled The Messiah Before Jesus, he describes the culture, the feel of the room, the feel of the area, the feel of the religious thought right as Jesus was born. Dr. Knoll explains that various Jewish theories about the Messiah, sure they included the Messiah, the son of David, who would come and reign on a king on earth. But also they describe him as the Messiah, the son of Joseph, Joseph from the Old Testament, who will be rejected by his brothers, mistreated, 
left for dead, but will eventually reappear and save not only the nation of Israel, but also the world. You go, wow, that does sound an awful lot like who Jesus came to be. And the more you read the story of Joseph, it's littered with hundreds of clues pointing to Jesus. So how did they miss it? How do we miss it? How do we miss God's plan for our life when it's right in front of us? I think it's because we never stop to ask one question that we're going to look at today. And because we don't stop to ask this question, we never actually answer this question. Yet this is the question that God has often got in the background of our lives to see if we're growing. And the question is this, will we handle this time the same way we handled last time? Have you ever noticed that your life rhymes? Have you ever noticed you find yourself in similar circumstances over and over again? Or think of it this way. Do you you notice that you and your spouse fight over the same thing, have the same basic fight, but every couple hours, every couple days, every couple weeks? It rhymes, doesn't it? You have the same basic dialogue with your sons and daughters. They say this, and I say this, and they say this. Why is that? Why is there this reoccurring pattern that we resent God for, or we just say, I guess there's no way out of it? Well, today, through Joseph's story, we're going to find out why. God wants to know if you've grown. Are you still going to handle situation with the same kind of inactivity you had before? Are you going to handle the situation with the same a way that you stuff and then explode in your anger as you did before? Are you still going to handle it with the same kind of Eeyore, poor me, I'm Job kind of attitude that you did before? Or from the last time to this time, have you grown enough to say, well, this is the same circumstance as last time, But this time, God, I'm going to be bold instead of fearful. This time, God, I'm going to choose activity over inactivity. Will I handle this time the same way I handled last time? And Joseph is very concerned about this question as he considers his brothers. He's going to give them four tests that we can give ourselves. And as we look at these four tests, I hope that, one, we can begin to cooperate with God's pattern in our life instead of resenting this pattern of reoccurring themes. You see, last time, Joseph's brothers chose money over listening to their brother cry out from a pit. Last time, they chose to hide the truth while their father sobbed instead of comforting him with the truth that would make them look bad. Last time, they chose self-centeredness over other-centeredness. And now Joseph will orchestrate events to create almost the exact same circumstances to figure out, will they handle this time the same way they handled last time? If you have your Bible with me, you can open up to the first test. The first test is the power test. The power test. Am I using my influence? We all influence folks. Some of us have a lot of influence, a lot of power, some less. But are we using the power, the talents, the gifts God's given us to exalt others or to exploit others? Jacob, Joseph's dad, he saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Or maybe he said like this, why do you look at one another? Now this is what I call conditioned hopelessness. You're a victim to circumstances. You're a victim to your life. There's nothing you can do. And they're looking around saying there's a famine. It's outside of our control. And Jacob says, let's at least brainstorm another bad idea, can't we? Inactivity is how we've been handling it last time. We've got to do something different this time. Stop just looking at each other. I got an idea, he says. I've heard. I don't know if it's true. 
but it's better than staring at each other. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. So activity, go down to that place. Buy for us something there. At least there we got a chance that we will live and not die. Next verse. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin. Now why is that? It's been 22 years now since Joseph's thrown in a pit. 22 years. And look at Is he still concerned? He's still concerned that they're going to handle this time just like they handled last time. I'm not sending my favorite son of my favorite wife with those group. He is so concerned about their character. Something hasn't smelled right for 22 years about how they've used their power. We know last time they were given power, they used their power to exploit their brother and throw him into a pit or to what Jacob thinks, kill him or to have him killed. But he doesn't know. There's too much mystery. But there's enough concern over what happened last time that he's not going to send his brother this time because lest some calamity befall him. Now, this same question as we look at Joseph's interaction with his brothers is true. Joseph has this uncanny ability to not be codependent and reinforce other people's bad behavior. He can set very clear boundaries with these tests to see if his brothers are trustworthy. And yet he's incredibly loving, ready to forgive, ready to provide at a, at a moment when he sees they've changed. What's so striking to me about this is that as Joseph interacts with his brothers, he's thought to himself, now, what did I do last time that I don't want to do this time? Last time I was overly trusting. Last time I was overly naive. Last time I didn't check out whether or not I was walking into danger. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I'm going to handle this time different from last time. God, give me the wisdom to check and test and see if their character has changed to see if I can re-engage in relationship. Now, Joseph has all the power now, right? Joseph has the power to enslave his brothers. He has the power to provide for them or let them starve. He has all the power, and we're going to find out after some tests that he uses his power to exalt others, to provide for others, and to care for others. Total contrast to his brothers. Now, it's a very emotional chapter. It's very emotional because I believe he's going to find out that one of his brothers tried to save him. He's going to find out that some of his brothers are starting to admit out loud that what they did was wrong. It's also very emotional, I think, because he's coming face-to-face with his abusers for 22 years. I think it's the first time in a long time I think he's going to discover that he has a brother. I don't think he knew about Benjamin. I think he's going to discover for the first time that his mother is dead. I'll give you my basis for that. Back in chapter 37, Joseph has a dream, his second dream. This is the dream when the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to him. He tells this dream to his father, and at this point his father says, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to you? So at this point, at the second dream, it looks like mom is alive. Now if mom's alive, that means Benjamin is not. Because if we go back a couple chapters, we find out in 35... Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, Joseph's mom, also Benjamin's mom, do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, she called his name Benjamin, or Benoni. So we know that Joseph's mom died when she gave birth to Benjamin. 
It seems like when the second dream occurred, she's still alive. So my belief is that she had Benjamin sometime when Joseph was gone. And so Joseph is going to discover he's got a brother in the story. And he's going to find out somewhere, even it's, it's, it's not in the text, so this, I'm going back to verse 35 to find this. When he finds that he has a brother, I think he pretty quickly finds out that his mom died giving birth to it. It's a lot of emotion in this chapter. And yet we're going to find out that Joseph, in the midst of all this emotion, all this pressure, all this stress, uses his power and influence to serve others and to exalt others, not to exploit them. And yet, he's not codependent. He gives tests to see if he should put his trust in them first. Our second question, the accusation test. Will I do the right thing even when I am wronged? It's easy to do the right thing when people treat you rightly. But can you do the right thing when you're wronged? And that's the question he's going to ask his brothers. You see, he has handled the situation of being thrown into prison unfairly. And he didn't spend the next 14 years as an Eeyore, though he could have. He says, I'm here, I'm not a victim, I'm going to practice God's presence in the prison. Even when I'm falsely accused, even when things that happened to me were wrong, I wonder if my brothers can do the same. So the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed. The famine was in the land of Canaan. Joseph was governor over all the land. And it was he who sold to all the people of the land. Now look at his power. He's the governor. He's the one who sells food. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him before him and their faces to the earth. And at that moment, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. He must have said, oh my, this is that dream from 22 years ago. After the years in prison, the two years of being forgotten by the butler, sold off, spit upon, rejected. And at this moment, he must have go, oh wow. God's still in control. Wow, God has used all of this in my life to form the very plan he told me about to begin with. And that's got to be on his mind because he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And again, here you see his strategy. Last time, I was too naive. This time, I'm going to act like a stranger to them. Spoke roughly to them. Who are you? What are you doing here? Now, we're going to find out he's rough for a bit when he gives these tests, but underneath is this very tender heart we're going to see in a few verses. So he's going to check and test and verify their validity, and then he will come back, and you'll see his tender heart. What he's going after is this accusation test. And he said to them, where do you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers. But they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said, You are spies! He accuses them of being spies four times. You have come to see the nakedness of the land, to spy out the land of Egypt. And they said, No, 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 my Lord. Your servants have come just to buy food. And now, they are pleading for the one in power to be merciful. Very similar to what Joseph did while sitting in a pit. He pleaded for his life when those in power did not listen to him. How will they handle being falsely accused? Have they changed? Are they different? How will they handle this circumstance? You see, if you're not open to feedback when you're wrongly accused, you're never going to get feedback. When somebody brings something to your attention, a character flaw, the way you handle your, your emotions, the way you handle your anger, the way you handle the situation... What is your instinct? Man, thanks so much. I'm really looking forward to a chance to grow. 
you immediately reject it. Don't, that's wrong. I'm falsely accused. Not true. Not true. You blame, you justify, you excuse if you're like me. You're never going to grow. You're never going to handle next time better than you handled this time if your instinct is to reject all feedback as falsely accused. Joseph said, what can I learn from this? Even if it is wrong, what does God want to teach me? And that allows him to grow and to develop and to trust God in a deeper way. Because if you're open to feedback that's potentially wrong... If you come into a situation and say, I'm probably wrong here, or there's probably a piece I'm wrong here, and I want to do the right thing, even if you haven't handled it in the right way, even if you didn't present it in the best way, God, I want you to grow me through this. I'm telling you, God will do something in your life. What I love about the culture we're developing here on staff is we're a culture of feedback and of grace and of truth. I had a staff member this uh, summer who I was sharing with, and uh, they were on stage and afterwards, I said, hey, can I give you some feedback? They said, sure. I said, here's some things that went really well. Um, here's a particular thing I'd like you to think about. Your, your personality comes across sardonic. And sarcasm's great. I'm a big fan of sarcasm. But there's sort of an innocent sarcasm. And then there's a I'm too cool to care sarcasm, which has almost got a bite to it. I said, I don't know if, you, you, if this is true or not. I could be wrong. But why don't you go back and watch the videotape and see if that rings true to you. So this staff member went home, watched the videotape, came back the next day. I'd forgotten about the conversation and said, Man, thank you. For what? For sharing that thought with me. I was watching the, uh, the video with my wife, and she said, and I saw it. I saw that thing you were talking about in myself. And my wife said, I've been trying to find a way to say that for years, and I couldn't find the right way to say it so you could hear it, so it wasn't criticism. It, it, it's sardonic disdain in your sarcasm. And he said, thank you for helping me grow. You know, every week, Doug and I uh, compare notes and share thoughts and ideas on each other's messages. And afterwards, after messages, hey, any ideas on how I could do better? Any suggestions you might have? And I love that collaboration of being open to each other's feedback. Last week at our 10, 11, 10 service, we had one of our st- uh, band members had a family member who was rushed to the hospital. And so we actually had to totally change the song we were doing at 745. And so Albert jumped in and, uh, and Kenny and did, I can only imagine, did a fantastic job. And afterwards, you know, Albert and I were talking in the backstage area, and I was suggesting one little tweak that might help him uh, in his bridgings. And he said, Chad, boy, I am here. I want to do better. I want this kind of feedback. And I want to be in an organization like that. I want to be with people like that. I want to become a person like that. Will I do the right thing when I am wronged? And you know who the source of strength to do that is? It's Jesus. Jesus stands before Pilate, and Pilate thinks he's got the power. You're being falsely accused here, and do you know I'm Pilate, and I have the power to either make you live or die? And Jesus, with such unbelievable manly confidence in a circumstance that he seemingly has no control, is a total victim to, he looks at Pilate and says, you have no power that my father didn't give you. When falsely accused, his head doesn't even fall down. His head is up bold on the cross as he looks at those who are spitting upon him and accusing him and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is a guy who does the right thing in the total wrong circumstances. This is God. This is the heart of God that I want pumping in me. I read a story, Tennessee guy, man, He was in prison for 31 years, 31 years, 10 more than Joseph, for rape. 
After 31 years, the DNA evidence was found that proved that he was innocent. 31 years robbed from him. And then once he got out, he was trying to get employed and the state couldn't get their records straight. So it kept telling everyone he was a felon even though he had been forgiven or exonerated or whatever word you want to use. So not only was he punished for 31 years of his life gone, but now he can't get a job because the state can't get the records right. He was interviewed by a, a news reporter. His name was uh, Lawrence McKinney. And said, well, what, what do you feel? How are you handling this? Uh, what the state did to you? What the, what the world did to you? And here's what he said. My job now is to do the Lord's work. My number one priority is to help people know who Jesus is. I tell you, I've got friends who are working on the, the problem with the paperwork. But I've got peace. Real peace. Wow. Where do you get real peace, Steph? A third of your life ripped from you unfairly and you've still got that kind of attitude. Only that the person of Jesus is residing in you. So the accusation test. The third test we see is the honesty test. The honesty test. So the question is, is the right thing more important than the immediate thing? Because usually lying has an immediate consequence that's beneficial, right? That's why we lie. The passing pleasures of sin. So will the right thing be more important than the immediate thing? So Joseph turns to his brothers and says, all right, well, tell me about yourselves. Where are you from? Tell me about your character. What kind of people are you? Speaking through an interpreter. And they say, we are all one man's sons. We are honest men. (laughs) Honest men? You kiss your mom with that mouth? That's unbelievable. Honest men? You're the one that threw me into a pit. Honest men, you got to be kidding me. These guys are so deluded, out of touch with reality, not in touch with what really happened. you got to be kidding, right? They're not passing the test. Do you like that spit take? Those are hard to do. <laughs> they are not passing the honest test, which will move us to the repentance test in a moment. He must just be aghast that they would refer to themselves. And, and listen to this. If they can be so deceived in thinking that the same people who sold this guy into slavery have lied to their dad for 22 years and still aren't trusted by their dad and they think they're honest? How much danger are you and I in? How dangerous is it to self-deceive yourself if these guys call themselves honest? How easy must it be to lie about your anger being a problem? How easy must it be to lie to yourself about your habits, about your temptations? You see, the path to freedom is honesty, it's truth, and only the truth can set us free. He said to them, no, you have, you've come to see the nakedness of the land, he says again. And they said, no, your servants are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the, in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. Hmm, there's some honesty. But Joseph said to them, it's as I spoke to you saying, you're spies. In this manner, and here's what I said. He's got this tender heart underneath this tough veneer of testing them to see if they're trustworthy. He says, in this manner, you will be tested. I want to test you. Listen, I'm going to provide for you, even though I think you're spies. I'm going to give you supplies, even though I called you a spy. What? Talk about grace and truth. And I'm going to give you a chance to step into the truth if you prove yourself by finding that brother and bringing him back here. 
I will know you're telling the truth if you pass the honesty test. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, and that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else, by the life of Pharaoh, you're truly spies. And then, he says, in fact, just to let you know, just to sort of test you a little bit more, I'm going to put all of you together in prison for three days. I spent 14 years in that place. Let's see how you handle three days. And he's testing them. Three days. And here we move to the final test. And this test almost is the one that speaks to all the other three, and that's the repentance test. Ultimately, what God wants from us is what Joseph wants from us and from his brothers. Are they still hiding the truth or are they willing to repent, to turn toward the truth of God's grace, to turn toward the truth of who God is and say, God, I want you. I want to, I want to walk in truth even if it means some, some embarrassment. I want to walk in truth. I'd rather be with you in truth than in the darkness with my lies. And that's our last test, the repentance test. Am I hiding or repenting? And here again we see little clues dropped in about Jesus. Joseph said to them on the third day, not two, not four, on the third day, do this and live. Oh, and by the way, guys, another little hint, though I'm speaking through an interpreter, in a pluralistic society that considers Pharaoh to be God and many gods, I fear the God. Hint, hint, hint. Later he'll assemble them in line from oldest to youngest. Hint, hint, hint. He's put little clues in. And here's the test. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined to the prison house. Now, why would he do this? Ah, because again, he wants to know, will his brothers choose, hey, we got our food, we're taken care of, let's not worry about that other brother. Will they choose their own needs over a brother? Do you remember he said in that pit, pushed down into the darkness, crying out for help, and they were eating while he was ignored? But, with one of your brothers confined here, go carry grain. I'm going to provide for you. For the famine of your houses, bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified. Show me it's true. And you won't die. There won't be any consequences to truth. And they did so. And immediately they saw the connection between this circumstance, this time, and last time. He didn't spell it out. But he's organized events in such a way that it's obvious to them. And they begin to talk in front of him, not knowing he knows their language. And they say, oh my goodness, we are truly guilty concerning our brother. Now you're Joseph listening to this, and just think about how it must affect you. They're finally admitting they're wrong. They're not fully repentant, but this is different. They're finally admitting what they did to me was wrong. And he keeps listening as they say, oh, we saw, we saw the anguish of his soul when he was in that pit. We remember hearing him pleading for us, just like we've been pleading to this guy who's in charge of us. And this guy's actually giving us a chance to prove ourselves. He's actually providing for us. We didn't even listen to the cries of our brother. We would not hear, even though we're begging this Pharaoh to hear us now. Therefore, 
since what we did last time we have not repented of, we have not dealt with, we have not come into light with. Therefore, because of that lack of repentance, this distress has come upon us. And Joseph is saying to himself, maybe they're changing. Maybe God's at work here. And I think this next line might be the one that causes Joseph to weep. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against this boy? And you would not listen. And maybe Joseph, for the first time, is hearing that one of his brothers tried to rescue him. There was at least one person trying to do the right thing. Reuben. Reuben tried to stop this. So he's got all these emotions that are coming upon him at once. And then his brother says, therefore behold, his blood is now required of us. You see, when we do something wrong, there's consequences. There's shame. There's guilt. There's generational patterns that occur. And if we don't come to grips with repenting and turning toward the light, finding his grace, finding his forgiveness, but also walking in the truth... There's consequences. The secrecy in the family, the the lack of honesty and trust that went on there. And again, do you see the hint of the Messiah? When you do something wrong, someone's blood calls out. It's required that someone pay for what you did wrong. To which Joseph did not know that, or they did not know that Joseph understood them. For he spoke to them through an interpreter. But when he hears all of this, he turned himself away from them and wept. Just wept. He composes himself. He says, they still call themselves honest men. They still said that one is no more, not that they sold him off. But they at least are starting to recognize that what they did was wrong. So he comes back and he gives them one more object lesson to try and reinforce his repentance. He took Simeon. So he knows Reuben's now innocent. He goes with the secondborn, Simeon, from them and bound him right before their eyes. This guy is being bound because you're not trustworthy. Your actions are forcing not only the brother that's gone, but this brother right now is being bound because of what you've done. And again, we see Simeon now as a picture of Jesus. He will be ransomed and held until they return. He will be bound because of their actions. He will be held because of what they have done. And here we just see the Messiah and Jesus popping up all over the place. And they will leave. And I think the question we need to ask ourselves, because he'll continue testing them several more tests, is this. How are we doing? Let's ask that question that Joseph's trying to get his brothers to ask, that God, I think, is trying to get you and I to ask. And the question is that, will I handle this time the same way I handled last time? Let me grade yourself on your tests. Let's let's look at those tests. Let's grade yourself. Number one, the power test. Right now, whatever influence you have, financial power, sexual power, emotional power, mental power, financial power, right now, are you using your power more to exalt others Or exploit others? Are you growing in that area in your life? Are you serving your your family? Are you serving your spouse? Are you serving your employees? How are you using your power? How teachable are you? Are you going to do the right thing and listen to feedback 
even if you don't think they present it the right way, or even if you don't think it's probably mostly true, are you willing to go digging for the little bit of truth? How about the honesty test? Is the right thing being free from guilt, being free from shame, being free from secrets? Is that so attractive to you that you're like, I want that more than I want to stay hidden in the darkness? That's where there's power in transformation. There's power in vulnerability. If you grade yourself, maybe A, B, C, D, or F, what would you give yourself in the power test, the accusation test, the honesty test? And how about this, the repentance test? What are you hiding versus repenting? Here's what's so powerful about the Bible and the truth of what God says. When you uncover stuff, when you bring it out into the light, that's when God covers it. He covers your guilt when you bring it out. When you uncover, he covers. When you uncover your shame of what happened, and you feel like nobody could ever know this, nobody could ever love me, when you uncover it, God then covers it with his blood. But you're never going to do that until you turn, want honesty, and you come into the light. And God says, come on, i got freedom for you. Come on, you know you've heard this from people. People have been saying this to you. Your employees have been saying this to you. Your, your husband's been saying this to you. Your wife said there's a, there's a rhythm of things that have been said to you in the last two years, five years, ten years, twenty years. There's a rhythm. You've rejected the rhythm. You keep handling this time like you handled last time. Grade yourself and come into the light because of my grace. I already love you. I already love you no matter what you've done. I've already accepted you. There's no condemnation in those in Christ Jesus. And since you're already fully loved and I can't love you anymore and I won't love you any less, because of that, you can step into the light and say, okay, God, I'm finally ready to get serious about this issue. I'm finally ready to come into the light. I'm finally ready to cooperate with your plan instead of resenting the pattern. And how do you do that? How do you repent? You know, last week, I got into a fight with my daughter. It's hard to get in a fight with my daughter because she's so sweet. So one of us must have been more wrong than the other. Hard to say, really. I got mad at her. I asked her to do a couple things. I'd even sent her several reminders to do it. So she came home that night, and I said, hey, did you get that thing done? Oh, I forgot. Forgot? I literally told you three times, and then I gave you... Two or three reminders. How could you have forgotten? We talked. That's the thing we wanted to do tonight. And tears start coming down her cheeks. And I decided to handle this time different from last time. I caught myself sooner. Oh, this is not good. This is not helpful. This is not a healthy way to talk to someone I love. Now, was there truth in what I was saying? Sure. But I, I paused. And I said, honey... I started thinking, what what have I done wrong here? Hey, do you feel like I was too harsh? Yeah. Fruits of the Spirit that aren't showing up right now. (laughs) Do you feel like I lacked being gentle? Yeah. And the way I said this wasn't very loving? Yeah. When I want you to know that I was wrong. And I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Yeah. And you know what? I don't want to handle next time the way I'm handling this time. If you see me doing something like this again, could you bring it to my attention? Because I want to grow in this area. Yeah, I will. I said, now I want to help you learn some of these skills so that I don't have to remind you two or three times. I want to help you grow in this area, but I, but I want to do it from a heart of gentleness as your dad. 
All right. Now, do you think I had more influence with my daughter after I confessed or less? More. There's strength in grace. There's strength in repentance. There's influence when we come into the light. I've been teaching my kids for years. Here's how you apologize, because most of us never had a real apology modeled for us, and we never learned how to do it. It's saying I was wrong, specifically. I was wrong when I was harsh. I was wrong when I was impatient. I was wrong when I disciplined out of anger. I'm sorry. I can see that my actions have hurt you. Will you forgive me? I want to put myself in a place of humility where you choose to forgive me, to cement our our relationship. And then I want accountability because I want to grow. I want to trust God to handle my emotions and my anger better next time. Will you bring this up to me if you see me doing this again? Now, for some of us, we've never said anything like that. So it's going to start off with, I was wrong. Chet said, I've got to be specific. By making you feel that way. No, no, no. When I was impatient, unkind, cruel, and I'm sorry. No, no, look at him. Look at you hurt. You looked at him when you hurt him. Why don't you look at him when you apologize? I am sorry. Will you forgive me? I'm telling you the power of those words. And think about Joseph. Isn't that what Joseph was longing for? 22 years. Think about the scarring and the hurt in his heart. And he was just longing, just longing. He was already ready to forgive. We're going to find out later. He was just longing for them to say, Joseph, we were wrong in what we did. We are so sorry that we wasted 22 years of your life. Will you forgive us and help us do better? Let's pray. Father, we want to be more and more like your son, Jesus. And we ask that the same Jesus who passed all these tests with flying colors will take the wheel of our heart and grow us and develop us, conform us in the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We'll see you next week.